Today's scripture is from Luke 2, 22 through 35. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And this is John 19, 25 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray that just in the reading of that, um, we would be convicted and we would be encouraged. We'd be strengthened. And I ask that my words would fall to the ground and blow away, not be remembered anymore. But Lord, let your words remain. May they change us. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I want to do things a little different tonight. I knew we'd have a uh, very intimate group um, with it being Thanksgiving weekend. And so we're going to take some time after the message actually to break up and we're going to pray um, and this message is kind of leading towards some of the things that I want us to be praying towards. Um, in Luke 2, we, we find a passage that rejoices in the birth of Jesus. Um, and then at the same time, right after this happiness, you have it, this turn in Simeon's talk to language of, of sorrow and, and opposition and rejection, a sword. And with this being our... Um, monthly meditation on the cross, and also the first week of Advent, I thought this would be an appropriate passage of Scripture for us to look at. Jesus has just been born um, to the chorus of all of these angels in Bethlehem and shepherds coming and bowing down um, to Him. And then 40 days after you're born, the Mosaic Law requires that you go and you pay ransom or you make a sacrifice for your firstborn male. And so Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they head to Jerusalem. This has been 40 days after he was born. We know that they're really poor because they can't sacrifice a lamb. It says they sacrificed two turtle doves or two pigeons. And that was, 
And the Levitical law said that could be a poor man's offering if you can't afford a lamb. And so Jesus, is, um, his mother and his father are very poor. Um, this had to be a joyful time for Joseph and Mary. Um, it was joyful when Lauren and I, we dedicated to each of our children. We would have a lunch that day and we'd have family over. And it was just, it was a real celebratory time. And I'm sure that was the same thing um, for this young married couple as they're presenting their child there. And uh, after their sacrifice and, and this jubilation, they're leaving the temple and this old man heads straight for them. And his eyes are just intense and they're full of purpose. And he comes up and says, can I hold your baby? Can I hold your baby? And Luke tells us that this man was devout, that he was righteous, that he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel and that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And I'm sure that his life has been consumed with praying for these things, the glory of Israel, the consolation of Israel. And in the morning he would pray for these things. And in the evening he would pray for these things. And here, finally, he's seeing the answer. If you want to understand Advent, understand Simeon, a life filled with hope and expectation and waiting for the Savior. Waiting. One time during Simeon's prayer, the Holy Spirit says, Simeon, I'm going to grant you your request. Before you die, I will let you see your king. I will let you see the king before you leave this earth. And from that moment on, I bet with intense anticipation, Simeon prayed and he sought and he looked at every child and every couple that came by with a child and wondering, is this the one? Is this going to be the king? And, and finally he sees this young couple that's about to leave the temple and the Holy Spirit says, that's the one. There's your king. And he beelines right there and, and Mary can see fire in this man's eyes and he says, can I hold your baby? Now, I mean, Lauren and I, when... We take Georgia around. Everybody wants to hold babies. And as, as parents, you're always kind of like, okay, you know, they're all, your baby's so juicy, you know, or you're just, I just want to hold. And, and, you know, we're always thinking germs or, you know, we don't know you're a total stranger. And here's this old man, very passionate, and he comes up and says, let me hold your baby. And there's something about him, Mary doesn't refuse. And so she gives her baby to this stranger. And he, he lifts up this child. And the, this is the one he's been waiting for for so many years. And he prophesies in verse 29. Let's read it again. It says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. And it says, And Mary and Joseph, they marveled at these words. Words of tremendous hope. I mean, their child's called salvation. It's going to bring glory, a light to the Gentiles. Their child is going to change the world. That would make you feel pretty good as parents. If you were to come up to Lauren and me, and you, you, know, you were just to say, Oh, your child's got the most beautiful eyes. Your child, you know, oh gosh, destined for great things. You're going to win us over. We're going to be beaming. And I'm sure that as young parents, they're absolutely beaming. And then they can see Simeon's countenance change. 
His face darkens. And I'm sure Mary wants to get her child back at this point. And he still holds on. Then he says this in verse 34. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Mary, He's going to be a king, but people are going to oppose this king. He is going to divide the world. And a sword is going to pierce through you. And she's probably thinking, I wish I got the child back earlier. What would cause him to say this? What does this mean? The last phrase is something that I've been mulling over for a while, that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. Now, if I were to prophesy about Jesus... And, and, and talk about the purpose, what his life is leading up to. I would talk about forgiveness. I'd talk about hope. You know, I would do the light into the Gentiles, all of, that, all of that stuff. I wouldn't say the purpose of his death is to expose what's in man's hearts. That's the purpose. People are going to rise and fall because of him. There's going to be a sword and it's going to divide and it's going to show what is in man. And you actually hear remarkably similar words to this from Jesus' own lips in Luke 12 when he says, Do you think that I came to bring peace to the world? No. I tell you, I came to bring division. Houses will be divided. Fathers will be against their sons. Mothers will be against their daughters. Jesus says, I'm a sword. A month ago, we looked at our meditation on the cross, Psalm 22, and we looked at how all of the gospel accounts, when recording the life of Jesus, they all make it a point to pull out the mocking, to tell of the mocking of Jesus. Every gospel pulls out. They don't focus on the physical details, but they, they, they focus on what people say and the mocking and the humiliation. And they didn't mock Jesus because of the Sermon on the Mount. They didn't mock him because of his teachings. They didn't mock him because he was kind. They didn't mock him because he had a heart for the poor. They mocked him because of his claims. He claimed to be the Son of God. That's the only reason they mocked him was because what he claimed to be, who he claimed to be. And because of this one claim, he's divisive. You will either mock him or you will worship him, but you can't be neutral concerning Jesus. He hasn't given you that option. Um, in Flannery O'Connor is a good man is hard to find. Um, she tells of this bandit um, who's killing off a family one by one. And uh, you would take you know, one of them in another room, kill him, come back and get another. And, and there's this mother who's left, and she's just trying to talk and say anything to this bandit to keep from being killed. And so she brings up Jesus, you know, let's get the religious talk in there. Let's talk about, you know, certainly you're not going to do this because of Jesus, you know. What would Jesus do, you know? Um, and he has this interesting comment. It says, when she mentioned Jesus, the bandit replied, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. 
the misfit continued, and he shouldn't have done it. He'd thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down his house or doing some other meanness to him. There's no pleasure but meanness. And he said this and his voice had become almost a snarl. Now, Flannery O'Connor, she wrote this as a criticism of professing Christians. Professing, professing Christians who treat their faith with such casualness. The misfit understood Christianity. And that if Jesus did what he said he did, it throws everything off. Now, when I was the director at UCF, I was often asked... Um, People always think, you know, that we're, you know, the, the generation that's coming up is the worst generation and we're always living in the worst times. Everybody always thinks that. And so they would ask, Joel, what do you think is the, the, the worst problem with this generation, you know, with, of professing Christians? What's their biggest problem? And I would always respond, their problem is the exact same as your problem. As all of our problems is that we don't believe what we say we believe. That's the biggest thing that I see wrong With this generation, we don't believe what we say we believe. Have you ever thought of the absurd claims that we believe? That the God who spoke the universe into existence became man. And he walked on this earth and he ate and he talked and he played. And we crucified him. And then he rose again from the dead, and now he gives his Holy Spirit to all who believe. And if you listen to that, just someone to just come up and tell you that off the street, you say it's absurd. Or as Paul tells the Corinthians, it says that the Greeks say madness, and the Jews say that's foolishness. It's divisive. It is absurd. But if you believe it, if you really believe what you say you believe, it changes Everything. If you believe God became man, it changes it all. The claim of Jesus is a sword and it exposes our rebellion because we don't want the Lord to walk this earth. We want to be our own Lord. And what Simeon is saying here is that Jesus is going to be this divisive figure and he's going to act as a sword. He's going to cut through people's hearts. He's going to expose what's in them. And then he looks at Mary and he says, Mary, this is going to be particularly painful for you. For you. And he says, this is going to be a sword. And the Greek word there is this a double-edged sword. This is a big, broad, double-edged sword. And obviously he's talking about the crucifixion. But I would consider that one blade of the sword. And the other blade is simply how Mary is going to have to learn to relate to Jesus. How she's going to have to learn to relate to him. She cannot relate to him as a blood mother. She's going to have to relate to him in faith as the Son of God. And that is going to pierce her. In Luke 8... Jesus' brothers tried to speak with him, and and Jesus' mother tried to speak with him, and Jesus, he says, okay, I know they're out there, but 
Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? It's whoever does the will of the Lord. Can you imagine how much that must have stung Mary, who's out there and Jesus won't come and talk to her? His own mother's out there and he says, who is my mother? You're my mother. You're my brother and my sister's. And he's not devaluing her role as a mother. What he's doing is he's exalting the role of a spiritual family. He's saying that that takes precedence. Jesus would later say things like, He who does not hate his father and mother is not worthy of me, or is not my disciple. Can you imagine if that got back to Mary? Your son is going around saying that you've got to hate your mother. Divisive. Pierces her. Now let's look at this sword of the crucifixion. Turn to John 19. It was providence that God allowed Mary to be here at the cross when her son was executed. Most of us don't really think about this, but you know, Mary didn't live in Jerusalem. And Jesus, he was arrested at around midnight. He was tried early in the morning. He was executed by midday. So there's really about a 12-hour period in which he was caught, tried, executed. And yet Mary was allowed to be there because it was Passover. God in his providence made sure Mary was there. His brothers were there. And I'm sure when she heard the news, she rushed to Golgotha just in time for the last moments of Jesus' life. But nothing could have prepared her for the sight that she saw. There's her son, beaten, bloody, nails in his hands and feet, hanging up naked, humiliated in front of everyone. People mocking him, insults at him. And then Jesus looks at her and he says, He looks at her and he looks at the disciple. And he says, behold your mother. And he says, woman, behold your son. And these are remarkable words because at this moment, Jesus is experiencing hell. And we've looked at that in our monthly meditations on the cross. Jesus is experiencing hell, total abandonment. Yet here he's looking out for the needs of others from hell. And he's looking out for the needs of his mom. And he looks at John, who's the the disciple here, and he says, John, this is your mother. This is your mother. Now, as an eldest son, Jesus would have been responsible for Mary. Um, She was a widow. Joseph had likely been dead for a number of years. You know, Jesus waited till he was 30 years old to enter into ministry. And likely a lot of that was because he was having to take care of Mary during this time. He was doing the role of an eldest son and taking care of her. And so it's his job to, to bequeath at his death that role of responsibility to somebody else and really to give all of his inheritance some, to somebody else. Um, it's interesting. I find that in the life of Jesus, if you study it, the concern that he has for widows. Um, you, we have three resurrections. Jesus raised three people from the dead. A little girl, he raised um, Lazarus from the dead. And those were from request. People asked for Jesus' help. 
But there's one other time he raised somebody from the dead. And it's when he was just walking in a town and a funeral met him. And he saw a widow weeping over her only son going by. And Jesus stopped the funeral and he gave the woman back her son. There's something about seeing the widow weeping that broke Jesus. And he stopped it. And he gave her back his son. And Jesus is always looking after the way. He's always looked after his mom. And you see this here. Mary depended upon him. You saw that in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Canaan. In which there's a need. What's the first thing that Mary does? We've run out of wine. Goes to Jesus. She's so used to going to Jesus. Jesus, I've got a problem. Will you help me out? And actually, the the gospel writer John here, he wants you to see that story and this story connected. It's the only time he ever addresses his mom. Both times he says, calls her woman. And both times he's talking about the cross. And you see at the wedding of Cana, Mary comes to Jesus and says, will you help me out with this? And he says, woman, why are you bothering me? Don't you know my hour has not come? Or don't you know I'm not dying on the cross? You want me to meet a need? I can't meet the need. My hour, I'll meet the need on the cross. And here you have on the cross, he sees his mother and he says, woman. And he meets her need, her ultimate need this time. And providing salvation for her. That's the need above all her other needs. One can also hear in Jesus' words here, when he says, behold your son and Um, Behold your mother, a rebuke against Eastern and Western um, thoughts on family. It's actually a pretty subtle rebuke, but it is definitely there. Because here you have um, Jesus who's in the midst of hell, and, and he doesn't think of himself. He actually thinks of his family. That's against what Eastern thought is about their family, which, which, which holds up the individual above all else, above all family ties. And he says, no, at this moment, even when I should be just thinking about myself, I'm going to think of family and taking care of my family. But yet it also goes against Western thought, which holds the family as the, as the central uh, the central thing in life. Everything revolves around your family. If you've been around any of any Asian families... Um, in which they hold their, their parents with such honor and esteem and they live for the glory and the honor of their parents. Here, Jesus, he goes against that because he says, yes, family's important, but it's not blood family. And he says, I form a new family here. And so he, he both, he holds the, the, to, yes, it's not the individual, it's the corporate, it's the family, but it's not blood. It's my spirit that forms this family. That is what is most important right here. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't ask his brothers to take care of Mary. And they're certainly there at the cross. There's your blood kin. And Jesus looks at them, and then he goes to John. He says, take care of my mom. This was not a traditional thing to do. Also notice John, he's probably extremely young. I don't know what picture you have of John. He's probably like the kid brother of the disciples. 
He's really, really young. And we know this for a number of reasons. One, he, he lives really long. The Gospel of John is written much later. Um, even little things like uh, when he was running back from the tomb, he outran Peter by a long shot. Um, but here he's actually at the cross. If you notice, John mentions all these women. There's three Marys and somebody else. And uh, then there's John. Now, Jesus was crucified as a revolutionary. He claimed to be king. It was treason. Any one of his followers would have also been executed. And yet here's John, and he's not being arrested. And the reason he's not arrested is because John is too young for that. He's not seen as a threat. He's not seen as, oh, this person's going to carry on Jesus' revolution. Uh, Craig Keener has a great commentary on John. says, um, John, at this point, he couldn't even grow a beard. He's young which makes this even more just, uh, just amazing, is that here you have older, or you have these, these siblings, they're, they're younger than Jesus, but they're probably older than John, capable. And Jesus looks at this young, inexperienced disciple of his. He says, you take care of my mom. And one of the things you should walk away with this is if Jesus calls you to do something and you claim inexperience and you claim I'm too young, that's such a pathetic excuse. Jesus got this young disciple to take care of his own mother. He calls us. He doesn't care about the age. What he wants is faithfulness to his call. Jesus exalts the bonds that we have through the Spirit. They're stronger than any other bonds, stronger than blood, stronger than the, uh, the bonds of marriage, because these are the bonds that we take for all eternity. That's what Christian family is. I'm reminded of Peter's words in Luke 18, and Jesus just told the story of the rich young ruler, and Peter, as always, you know, he says something, goes, well, Jesus, we've left our houses and all these things to follow you. And I always picture Jesus' response as being slightly sarcastic. Slightly. Said with a smile. He goes, oh, have you, Peter, really left all? I tell you, you will receive hundreds more brothers and sisters and homes in this life and the life to come. And obviously he's talking about the kingdom of God when it comes, but he says in this life, and what he's talking about is your Christian family. Yeah, Peter, you gave up one home and you gained hundreds. You left one family and you gained an enormous family. And that bond is deeper than your blood family. It's stronger. And you find all through Paul's letters, he calls... His fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, and he even calls Timothy his child. And I think we use that language so much, we've just kind of gotten callous to it. It's pretty remarkable that we can call one another brother or sister. That's remarkable. I want you to notice just a few things from here. One, Jesus makes the family we don't. Honestly, I probably wouldn't pick everybody in this room just because I'm a mean guy. And if I had to pick a family, there's some people I get along with really well. Some people I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, I know God, you want me to love them. You know, and we're all that way. We all have family that we probably don't like. Blood family we probably don't like, but do you love them? Absolutely. 
You didn't choose them, but they're part of your family. God here makes the family. He makes the church family. He puts people together, and I've said this before, it's almost like an experiment. Let me get, you know, this person here and this person here. They're totally opposite in every way. Now let's put them together, and they have to worship side by side me. How glorious. How glorious. God makes the family. We're not a country club in which we all have the, you know, the same ideas, the same values. We all look alike, have the same income. God says none of that. That's a country club. This is a church, a church family. And I do the picking. One final thing we learn from the word of Jesus' last words here on the cross is we learn what it means to be a disciple. Jesus says, from that hour, or from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The disciple took her to his own home. John is really, in the Greek, it's it's very strong in that he, he took her to himself. And he takes the concerns of Jesus and he makes them his own concerns. And that's what being a disciple is. You see what Jesus is concerned for. Justice. He's concerned for the poor. He's concerned for the widow. We've seen these things in Exodus. We've seen his heart. A disciple takes those concerns and we make them our own. His passions become our passions. Our passions.